Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. Here in Brussels, it's been another tedious Brexit week, with more heated rhetoric, but not a lot of light. President Trump also gave his State of the Union speech, finally. Off the back of that speech, Gordon Sondland, Trump's ambassador to the EU, joined Politico reporters for an editorial meeting Wednesday. We've got a story on politico.eu if you'd like the full menu, but here's a flavour of his message. Sondland's starting position is to be sceptical of the EU's institutional mindset. The Commission is like a factory, churning out regulation after regulation after regulation, even regulating things that don't exist today, on the theory that someday someone's going to get hurt somewhere. But while the Trump administration doesn't like EU bureaucracy, President Trump and his team do have time for individual figures like Jean-Claude Juncker or the EU's new ambassador to the US, Stavros Lambrinidis. The president has a great deal of faith and confidence in President Juncker. He likes President Juncker a great deal. Finally, Sondland left the warning that Trump or no Trump, there are some fundamental issues that need to be resolved in the EU-US relationship, like how they approach China. And in the meantime, Sondland says the US isn't afraid to escalate trade disputes with the EU and others to get what it wants. There's an enormous imbalance. There are enormous non-tariff barriers that have to go away, or the United States will simply be forced to do a tit-for-tat and put the Europeans in the same position that the United States is in and make it far more difficult for the Europeans to sell into the United States until both sides de-escalate simultaneously and proportionately so that the markets are open. In our main interview this week, I spoke with the team at Bellingcat, one of the most fascinating journalism and public interest projects in the world. They're an independent private initiative, a not-for-profit network of people committed to applying their collective brain power to the world's digital information, be that satellite images, social media videos, or other digital footprints to get to the bottom of thorny questions, to bring truth to a post-truth world. Now that's a mission that brings them in contact with the media world, the activist world, the legal world, and more. Let's hear from them now. Joining me now on EU Confidential are three really fascinating guests. We have the founder of Bellingcat, which is a open source online investigations journalism outlet, Elliot Higgins. Welcome, Elliot. Hi. And we have Christian Trubert, who is a senior investigator with Bellingcat. Welcome, Christian. And Maritza Scharke, who is a senior Dutch member of the European Parliament, who's hosting these guys here at the Parliament today to screen a documentary about their work. I'm so glad that you're all here. Thank Thank you. you. It's great. Now, to give a little bit of context to our listeners, you use open source and social media tools to shed light on some of the darkest corners of human activity. So we're talking conflicts, corruption, organized drug crime and things like that. And you've had some very big scoops, the sort of scoops that make journalists from other outlets like me very jealous. We're talking uncovering the Scripple suspect, for example, that Russian poisoning case, leading the charge on discovering who and what shot down MH17 over Ukraine and many other cases. For me, that just raises so many questions about why you're needed, how you do it, and how all of that relates to the way journalists in other places do their work. So maybe, Elliot, do you want to tell us how this all got started and what you have built up over these last few years? 
I actually started blogging back in 2012. I had a blog called the Brown Moses blog that was uh, named after a Frank Zappa song for no particular reason. But I'd been um, following the conflicts in Libya very closely and I'd seen kind of information being shared on social media that was broadly being ignored. And that was basically down to issues of trust. So I kind of was wondering, how can we actually check if this stuff is true? So I, I was looking at videos claiming to be from Libya, saying it's in this town on this date. And I wanted to see if I could figure out when it you know, these were filmed. And my background has nothing to do with journalism or investigation. I was doing kind of uh, accounts for various companies for a while. So in my spare time, I would look at a video and then say, okay, maybe if I look at satellite imagery, I can kind of see the features that are visible. And this is now a technique we all call uh, geolocation. But very early on, I just was kind of doing this for as a hobby, just because I was interested in what was happening. Over the years, I, you know, I kind of built a reputation, my blog got popular, and then I launched... Um, Bellingcat, and that was um, something I launched actually in um, July 14th, 2014, just before MH17 was shot down. Prior to that, I'd done a lot of work on Syria, but the shooting down of MH17 really acted as kind of like a catalyst for kind of open source investigation in general, the community around it, and the work of Bellingcat as well. When you say open source, you mean the, the power of the network, you know, drawing upon digital sources of information, many people who can combine their knowledge in order to, to help you deliver a result rather than this model of sort of the hero journalist, you know, the Watergate guys who go and pick up packages of documents in the dark and save democracy on their own. It's really down to two kind of um, developments that happened around 2007. First, you had the release of things like the iPhone, which led to social media sharing apps. So people were sharing a lot more information about themselves online in a far more open fashion. At the same time, you have the development of things like Google Earth, uh, Google Street View, and other sites that provided kind of reference imagery from the ground. And by combining both of those and kind of Google searches and other information, you could actually find out a lot of information that's verifiable about stuff that's happening in, you know, hundreds of, and thousands of miles away. And Christian, you've worked for a lot of major outlets as well as for Bellingcat. Maybe if you can tell us a little bit about how working in those different environments sort of contrasts, because I guess you have a lot more freedom when you're not working in those kind of big, heavy structures that we would traditionally associate with investigative journalism. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, it's interesting to know that, I mean, I wouldn't have been working for those larger media institutions or publishing in there if it wasn't for Bellingcat, if it wasn't for basically that open source investigation community. So when Elliot started the Brown Moses blog, right, and Elliot mentioned the iPhone 2007, I was kind of like I was 16 in 2007. But four years later, I was studying in, uh, and was really interested in conflict and, and, and war in journalism. So I did some freelance reporting for, for local Dutch newspapers in Iraq, for the student newspaper in Syria, Afghanistan and Chechnya and so on. But what I realized is that, that I wouldn't be really able to find anything that's new or very interesting while being at the front line in Iraq because there's so many different international media out there, the large ones, BBC, Washington Post, New York Times, you name it. And I started looking at satellite imagery myself because I was very inspired at the time by following on Twitter what people were figuring out, right? So that's how I got involved myself and started tweeting stuff. And... Um, after a while, Elliot picked it up, I guess, and uh, he was like, uh, and another member of our group, he was like, do you want to join uh, our Slack group? And I'm like, yeah, I never heard of Slack, but I'm like, yeah, sounds cool. <laughs> but ever since, uh, I think uh, there hasn't been a single day that I haven't been in the Bellingcat Slack. So the difference is really like, I would say, yeah, the, the great thing about what Bellingcat is like, 
we take we all started as volunteers, right? I mean, when I joined Bellingcat, I was still a volunteer until Elliot, when I graduated, was like, so what you would like to do? And it's like, well, you would know what I would like to do. And we managed to get funding for me, which was absolutely a dream coming true. But I think because of the nature of what we do, it's just digging very deep and not being tied by maybe someone who tells you, I will fund you, but you need to investigate this or... An editor that says, yeah, but we need to have a story by out by now. But just that eagerness to de- basically investigate anything, that freedom is just really strong. And obviously with larger media institutions, it's a bit different because there needs sometimes to be a story. But what we see, what we notice, I think, is that more and more media institutions start to realize, okay, it actually 24-7 journalism, I mean... What does it matter if here in front of the European Parliament there's a reporter sitting with a microphone three hours long just waiting for a quote that he gets through his ear through someone else? Investing that same money into someone that sits behind a desk and researching stuff is actually very useful. So we can see it changing. We can see the New York Times setting up a visual investigations team, which is very successful and very similar to Bellingcat, uh, what Bellingcat is doing. And the BBC set up recently the Africa Eye team, which is led by a by a Bellingcat member. And they literally say, what we want is a mini Bellingcat within the BBC. And they've already had one big success. There was a Cameroonian execution video yeah. that they did. And that, funnily enough, actually came out of a workshop we were doing. We were in regular workshops um, and a whole range of people coming. And we had a journalist from ITV News come there. And he was very interested in this video that had been shared online, showing two women carrying two very young children being marched down a road and executed. And it was very blatant. It was on camera. And he wanted to know where it took place. And we did a bit of work there. He did a piece on it in the evening news. And then the BBC saw that and said, we want to keep doing it. So we kind of made this coalition of BBC journalists, Amnesty researchers, Bellingcat researchers, and to be honest, just some people we knew off Twitter who were good at doing this work. And we managed to find exactly where it was filmed, the people involved, all this information about it. And that was a very big success for the uh, BBC Africa Eye Department. And it strikes me this is really the definition of the upside of the digital revolution, where we've seen a lot of news in recent weeks, thousands of journalism jobs being cut in other digital media outlets. Obviously, all of those legacy print and television networks have struggled in many different ways as well. But digital lets you trace things in a much deeper way. It lets you distribute your resources in much more different ways. Even in a tiny way, Politico is an example where we found another little way of covering a type of politics which was completely different to the newspapers that we tend to compete with. And um, I just think it's, it's impressive that you're able to kind of mobilise that out of a, a very disruptive environment. But maybe I should bring in Maricha here. Now, Bellingcat, one of the kind of core elements of their mission is to find truth in a post-truth world. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you've been dealing with for a very long time in terms of misinformation, disinformation. We're now going into the world of deep fakes and yeah. kind of endless Russian interference. Why do you think it's important that people in Brussels and other national capitals know what these guys are doing and make sure there's space for them to do it? I first met Elliot when he was investigating some of the atrocities in Syria. And precisely because of all the developments that you shared, disinformation, a lot of disputes about clips that are available, deliberate efforts to misinform people like ourselves here as decision makers about what is actually happening in Syria... I think the fact that you all as volunteers to a large extent, maybe increasingly as a professional organization, but really out of a deep conviction to find truth, regardless of who perpetrators are, essentially, really with an eye on how can we verify what has happened here? You know, double bombardments of hospitals in a city like Aleppo. 
trying to understand what time of day, what kind of weapons, what kind of angles, what the perpetrators could have known about who was on the ground and who was inside, I think is an exceptional kind of knowledge, an exceptional kind of skill that I believe members of parliament should know about. Because only if you know what's possible and only if you know that this kind of verification of events is out there, you can use it in the right way. So I actually see it even as something more than journalism. Because I think the way you present information as Bellingcat is sort of naked. It's very transparent, but you don't make a judgment about the reasons behind it. You just say on day X, you know, violence of this and this nature happened. We assess these weapons to be used. We think they came from this direction. Those people were in that direction. But you don't draw conclusions in a way that politicians might. And therefore, I think it is a very good source for all of us to be aware of and to also appreciate in terms of what we should do in policy, to fund initiatives like this through civil society. Obviously, you want to be independent, so I'm not <laughs> suggesting that the EU is funding you for all the conspiracy theorists out there. That is not the case. But really to make sure that these initiatives have a life and that they can indeed inspire others in media organizations and also in politics to understand what the upside of using technology in an ethical way and in a, a deliberate way is. Because it's kind of the opposite of the superficiality, the uh, cynicism that you see on social media. I think the kind of knowledge that you've tapped into from volunteers, from open source, meaning available information. You don't need intelligence sources to find the kind of clips and the information hidden in it that these uh, guys, I think you're mostly gentlemen, are there women actually, working on your it's teams? It's actually, um, by the end of this month, with our latest hires, will be 50-50 um, men and women. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. That is exceptional. Yep. But in any case, that your teams then are working on. That's the goal of, of having yep. this documentary here, which is a premiere here, I think. You're yes. still premiering in the US, right? You've only premiered in, yeah, we'll in the at, Netherlands at, yet. Uh, South by Southwest. We're also doing the Human Rights Watch uh, Film Festival in London as well for the premiere of the UK. Fabulous. And what is your goal out of something like that documentary? Is it to create the space to raise more money to do more work and actually how do you fund yourself that's an interesting question um so my kind of goal for bellingcat is not to make any political point or you know research a certain topic it's to spread the use of open source investigation a big barrier to that is just awareness that it's a thing you can do i mean it, it's used to shock me how many organizations didn't have a clue that open source investigation was a thing but the more i've kind of worked with different organizations the more i realize there's a real knowledge gap here and not just knowledge of how to do it but a knowledge of it's something you can do we've been working with uh, for example i'm on the advisory board for the icc talking to them about how they're using open source investigation actually the international think, criminal, criminal courts, courts. yeah, yeah. Oh, that was my next question yeah. is what are the other institutions that could apply these techniques but well, please continue what's very exciting about that is now um, there's a lot of interest in using open source material as part of justice and accountability that can be you know ICC court cases. We've had this very famous case with this uh, with Farley executions that ICC arrest warrant was issued on, which Facebook videos played a big part of that. We also have organisations we're now working with in Yemen where we're looking into um, various violations that have taken place there, including kind of arms export violations. And what we're looking at Bellingcat now is how we take everything we've learned from Syria and MH17 in Ukraine and turn that into a systematic process where we can look at the evidence, we can turn it into a useful piece of documentation, and most importantly, archive it. Because there's a big issue now where social media companies yeah. are taking down a lot of material that's relevant to the work we do. So we want to archive this material and then make it accessible to organisations in the future, be they the ICC or the uh, mechanism on Syria that's been set up by the UN General Assembly or lawyers 
lawyers in Germany or wherever, where they can find that information if they're looking for it as part of a case and they know we exist. And a big part of that is building a community around open source investigation, not just the journalism side of it, but the legal side of it, the technological side of it, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. And, you know, being a real driver within that community. This is what we'll be doing with our new office we're planning to open in The Hague. We're also going to be looking at training local Dutch citizens from a range of backgrounds to do open source investigations, looking at the world around them, you know, their immediate surroundings. So we'll be training people in Amsterdam to look into issues that affect Amsterdam and so on and so forth. So we have this kind of completely kind of from the ground all the way to kind of the courts or, you know, all the way to the top. We're looking at that entire system, that entire network of individuals and organisations. And it strikes me that it's really that training that is going to be your ultimate legacy. Because even if your website is shut down or you get hit by a bus tomorrow, heaven forbid, when you replicate those skills and that way of looking at the world, that's where you really are going to embed it and still have an impact in one or two generations. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really great to do. You, you asked the question of funding as well. And, and I mean, it's basically threefold, right? We Especially since after Skripal, we got a lot of uh, donations again. But I, I think it would be the largest share comes either from that we apply for funding or that we organize workshops. So we have organized indeed these five days workshops all around the world. We host them in English, we host them in Russian primarily, but we've also hosted them in Arabic, in Kurdish, even in Kyrgyz and, and, and perhaps even in, uh, in Armenian. And uh, basically the five of these workshops in English language, so these are held in Amsterdam, in London, Berlin, Prague, DC uh, and so on. People pay a lot of money, but it's basically for us a massive source of income, independent income. And um, that's great, of course, to keep Bellingcat and get actually people that did so much to get them paid. But it's indeed also that you're training so many people all around the world, journalists, uh, human rights activists, uh, international lawyers, that it's really, really, I mean, yeah, how can I say it? Like, it's, it's really great to see that how many people are then applying those skills they've learned in the workshop to their work. And getting an email from an Iraqi journalist that figured out a certain location that was really important for an investigation or a human rights activist that was able to figure out a mining company that was doing certain stuff that it didn't declare. That's fantastic because you can see it taking off everywhere, not only in Netherlands or in UK, or but in Moldova, in South Africa, in, in Nigeria, in Colombia. So, yeah, I would say that's absolutely uh, fantastic to see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really the best side of the open internet uh, that you're that you're igniting again, and then to allow that to be used for accountability for me is really inspiring because there are times when you look at the war in Syria, when you look at the war in Yemen, that you can get really sad because you wonder: is there ever going to be anyone held to account for killing innocent civilians? You know, is there anything we can still do? And then, without vital information. That is impossible. It's impossible for a lawyer to make a case that links somebody who gave the orders to the victims on the ground. It's impossible for us to call on stronger measures, for example, Mm -hmm. weapon embargoes, if we don't know that actual weapons are traded despite sanctions or whatnot. So this information can really be used for immensely important things, even though the way you work is independent and through transparent methods, what you provide is vital for lawyers, politicians, other journalists and citizens in that respect. And you can see it in a humanitarian context as well. Like the thing popping into my mind is we know there will be other massive migration movements in coming years, whether it's caused by climate-related issues or other, and not in the sense of spying on people, but knowing what is happening with those movements or where pressure points are or where there are violations of people's rights 
will just be essential to managing that situation. I think as well, one, one thing people have to keep in mind, you don't have to spend hours and hours committing time to this. The best example of this is the Europol Trace and Object Stop Child Abuse campaign. They basically took items that were visible in child abuse imagery, like a, you know, maybe a T-shirt or a bag or some bottles, and asked members of the public if they could identify them. through. And it was a big crowdsourcing campaign. But we saw that at Bellingcat and we kind of adopted that as a campaign ourselves and started spreading it through our network. Now, thanks to the uh, work we've been doing by promoting this and sharing it with people and just someone taking the time to look at a picture and say, I know what that is. There was an article in The Guardian recently about this where they said that nine victims had been identified, one suspect has already been arrested and there's probably more, it's just what they could talk about. But just by taking a few minutes to look at a photograph, children have been saved from horrific abuse. And this is why it's not just about having, you know, people spending hours staring at laptops doing this kind of work. It's just, you know, feeling you have the permission to do something, that you don't have to wait for permission to look at a photograph and say, I know something about this and I can share it. And if you share something and it's not right, then we have a whole community where we're discussing it. It's not about judging people for, you know, saying, you know, being wrong, although there is obviously a whole conspiracy community where we do judge them all the time for that. But um, it's about having this healthy community of people who can discuss stuff, share information, give the bits of knowledge they have and just build something that's much bigger than what an individual can do. And adding to that, I mean, I think it's it's really important point Elliot is making here. Like, it's not we're talking about these massive investigations, right? And they can be very hard, and and, and not everyone wants to watch an execution for like five days in a row, right? To figure out where it took place. But I think in this digitalized era, I mean, it's going to be more and more important. I mean, like I grew up with with the internet, but kids that are growing up right now, like teenagers, I mean, they're constantly online, right? And verification is not only for journalists, for lawyers, for politicians, but I guess for anyone Mm -hmm. living in the 21st century, right? So I think what's going to be talking about teaching and and, and workshops is that high schools, but perhaps even in in primary school, right, that there is a certain kind of digital literacy because there are such easy tools, even with the Europol campaign, that within seconds we're able to identify an object simply by doing a reverse image search, that just the basic skills are like, taught on primary schools or secondary schools because it's so important that people are aware of it and it doesn't need to be those horrible topics to learn about it so there's this really cool thing we're doing quiz time i contribute to it but uh, it's set up by actually by german journalist julia Bayer, and it's a daily quiz which allows us to get introduced to how do i verify an image how do i figure out where it was taken what is shown what is pictured and it's that same community but it's with the idea behind it it doesn't need to be these horrible topics it can be like It's just a nice puzzle to solve, but with the newest tools of nowadays. I was just thinking about that um, boy you helped as well with the... uh, Ah. Oh yeah, Manu. Yeah, I was. It was amazing. Like I was. Uh, there's like a Dutch uh, TV show, and I was there on there. And later on, I got an email from like an 11 year old boy, right? And he's like, "Oh, it's great what you do, and uh, can I interview for my uh, primary school project?" And I'm like, "Yeah, sure." So we talk all the time, and he focuses on illegal shark finning, and he's like, "You know, it's all interesting, but you focus only on war." And I wouldn't use this for something I really care about. So I'm like, "What do you care about?" He's like, "Yeah, I really care about like animals and animal welfare." And nature, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool, yeah. And I recognize you as a kid. I, I I was also like a WF ranger and whatsoever. And he's like, can I ask you for something? I'm like, sure. Can you help me with my primary school research project on illegal shark finning? And I'm like, sure. That sounds actually pretty cool. And for us at Bellingcat, that was for I think for the first realization. Okay, and even at the World Wildlife Foundation, mm-hmm. like, okay, we know Bellingcat of MH17. But we have never made the connection that we can use the same tools and methods to investigate illegal wildlife trafficking. So I actually was recently in South Africa 
because of Manu to investigate illegal wildlife trafficking. So this is a whole new avenue for Bellingcat to explore as well, environment and, and animal welfare. Um, that can be used in those tools. So that's that's an 11-year-old. So, so now we know what bloggers contribute and what 11-year-olds contribute. Maybe we should finish by figuring out what the political world can contribute. What, if anything, can education authorities, uh, politicians like yourself, Maricha, contribute to this movement? Well, I mean, I think it is first and foremost essential that they're independent. And I don't want to suggest uh, anything otherwise, but the idea and the proof that truth and facts can still be established at a time where so much is questioned and deliberately questioned, and that this constant questioning of truth and journalism erodes liberal democracy, I think should really point us to solutions. I'm so encouraged by all the work that Bellingcat does because it empowers people, as you said, Elliot, you know, people who are at home wondering what can I do, even a few minutes of their time can help. So I think this is a very inspiring story that needs to be shared and needs to make people aware what is possible instead of what's not possible, what could lead to defeatism and the kind of defeatism that at the end of the day erodes democracy. So I simply want to give these guys and their work a platform and hope that people take their own lessons. Well, your other responsibility is to get to this premiere, so I'm going to have to wrap it up there. But Maritza, Christian, Elliot, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you. Thank you. And now we are back with the Brussels Brains Trust. Hello, Lena Abaruz. Good morning, Graham. Good morning, Alva Finn. Hello, guys. Good to be back. I'm sounding super excited. You just sound more and more excited, and then that gets you through the winter, and it's like the sun comes back when you talk really excitedly. Okay, maybe I'm just excited about the Dutch politician, the anti-Islam politician by the name of Joram van Klaveren, who in fact has now converted to Islam, and he is the second former MP from Geert Wilders' party to do that. And he also has a new record. He is the most shared and most read story in Politico.eu's history. Did you guys have any reactions to that news? Yes, of course. Uh, it's really interesting story, and uh, I was wondering for how long he has been studying Islam and meditating and... Uh, understanding the Quran and understanding the seerah, which is like the, um, the explanation of the Quran. It's an extremely difficult religion to understand and immediately to believe in. Um, he was in a party, he belonged to a party that's so much anti-Islam. So during this time, what was really happening? It's very astonishing for me. I don't think he really did it out of uh, true belief in, in Islam. I think a uh, good move to win uh, the minority votes. How about you, Alva? I think it interests people because to someone who is an atheist, it really just looks like someone who wants to believe in something. And it is true that I think we psychologically want to have a belief system. It's just very interesting that he turned to the belief system that he hated. And I think when I looked at the comments online, I obviously was already seeing a lot of Islam bashing, you know, one extreme to the other. But it's not true that there are all, yeah, there are radical forms of Islam but there are also very moderate forms as well. And it's just very interesting when you see Europeans commenting on this because their view of Islam has been totally turned around by parties like this. I used to live in Egypt and there are very moderate Muslims. So, yeah, I think it just brought out the worst in people and when I read the story. And had you come across converts like that before? Yeah, for sure. I met a lot of Americans, a lot of Europeans who come to Cairo to study the Quran. 
And the other thing that it, it reminded me of is the only online fight I ever had was with two Americans who hated Islam. And it was so interesting how much of the Quran they had read. One of them actually spoke Arabic and, you know, were quoting the Quran at me, correcting things that I said back. And it was interesting the effort that they went to to research Islam so that they could disprove it or say that it was a, a bad religion. And I wonder if, if that's not why you have some of the Freedom Party converting, because they know more about it. They start to read it. They want to confirm what they think about the religion, but actually they change their minds in the end. Oh, Lena, you've got to tell us in words what that face is saying. <laughs> it's just exactly what Alva said. It needs time to read and understand, and you have to dedicate, dedicate at He's least two years, years of I mean, uh, of I, your I life. was confirmed and uh, had my Holy Communion before I could barely read when it came to Catholicism in yeah. Australia, and he had four years as an adult, so... Uh, Maybe he has absorbed something. While, while belonging and supporting a party that is extremely anti- No, he's left the party. He, he quit it. in 2014. And yeah, but still, I honestly don't... Did he spend time in Al-Azhar or did he go to Mecca? Did he go to the big schools who are his scholars? Who was preaching him? This is a freedom of, of, uh, of religion and each one has his own beliefs. But Is there a special place in hell for this politician? <laughs> we might or is, <laughs> is that just for Brexiteers, Lena? We might as well be consul- consulting uh, President Tusk about that, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of President Tusk, let's uh, very subtly segue into that topic. He really said what many in Brussels, and by that I mean senior diplomats, officials who work on Brexit issues, Donald Tusk said what they've been thinking when he said that there's a special place in hell for the Brexiteers who have pushed for these kind of very hard forms of Brexit, but have never really come up with a plan of how it's supposed to work. And I think in some ways that was very logical that the Brexiteers campaigned in that way, because the more detail they gave in the referendum, the less likely they were to win the support of the British people. And I think Tusk was saying he's been very surprised that the details just haven't emerged over the past two years. Does it confirm the trend that you've been feeling here in Brussels? It's definitely a hardening of the rhetoric. And last week we spoke about the Swedish foreign minister who also said that she couldn't forgive the British government for allowing them to vote on Brexit without a clear plan, right? So I think as we're coming closer and closer, what, we're like 50-something days away from Brexit? It looks not like now there is going to be, we're closer and closer to just going over the cliff edge. And that's going to bring out feelings, genuine feelings. And I think Tusk has always been quite careful with what he said about Brexit. At the beginning, you would have always heard him say, you know, we're very sad that they're leaving and if they want to stay, they can. So I think Tusk saying this now should be an indication to the British that there is a hardening line and that if something doesn't change and they don't provide more clarity on what they want, they are going to probably be the worst off out of a no-deal Brexit. It's all one-way traffic now, isn't it, Lena? Absolutely. It uh, actually reminds me when you are breaking up, you have this uh, denial and then anger, then acceptance, then, you know, it's like a roller coaster. So I think now it's the moment where you all the leadership on both sides I hope the Brits will not come out now with another definition of hell or description because they are very eloquent when when they describe things. Everyone is is lashing out and bashing. So it's the end of a lost battle for both sides. And uh, you can see the diplomatic lines are are going lower and lower in terms of how we we deal as a a president of uh, the European uh, 
Union or the president of uh, European Council. It is really um, the end. There is no more arguments to use. There are no more things except describing each other in an So what about way. this theory that I keep hearing from British journalists or commentators and they suggest, well, you know what, every single EU deal, it always happens at the last minute. The compromise always comes up at the last minute and it's going to happen again with the Brexit deal. I think the huge problem with that and the, the very early loss that Theresa May had where the parliament got the right to vote on the deal, that is what is in our way at the moment. It's in, in the way of, of achieving a deal. And it will be much more last minute as a result of that because you have to get a very divided house to agree to the to the deal and we know already that britain is divided on these lines it's not like if you went to a country that supports the eu yeah but, but this idea that the eu would somehow compromise or fold at the last minute like for me the eu does that when it can't agree amongst itself but it has already agreed amongst itself on this so i don't feel like that theory applies here yeah but i think it doesn't apply because you also have the other side of things which usually you don't have to put treaties like this through a parliament that has basically been why we haven't been able to achieve a deal so far so even if the eu back down or one or two of them start to kind of buckle on something right you still have to put it through the house of commons and it has to be something that they agree to and i think that is why it will be very difficult to have a last minute deal I don't think there will be any last-minute deal. There are 700 agreements to be uh, negotiated, to be agreed upon, and it's a 41 years of common regulations. The time is so, so short, and um, it's almost impossible. And if the EU did this throughout the history, I'm not sure this time they can do it. It is really big. It's a grave. You know? you know, I figured out what real Brexiteer hell is. It's waking up on March 30 and then realising that every single EU regulation that the UK has ever agreed to is still on the UK law books. They've left, but it's like it's not even Hotel California. They've got the upgrade in Hotel California. They're just stuck in the penthouse suite and mm -hmm. they can just never <laughs> escape EU regulation. Yeah. Well, let's go to one final topic before we wrap it up. It is the intriguing scenario that we're now facing, which is that there could be three yellow vest parties running in France, in the European Union Parliament elections in May. And were that to be the case, the single winner out of that process might be Emmanuel Macron's En Marche movement. And they were set up to bring down Emmanuel Macron. Uh, it was very funny, but just before we started, our producer Andrew was saying what kind of, you know, we'll have different colour vests, like a kind of warm yellow, a light yellow, something <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> yeah, I think it's very interesting. And it, it's true from the very beginning, the yellow vests were not very well organised. They didn't have a clear leader. Some of the leaders have received death threats as well. So that's why we have a few different lists. Some people have stepped down because I heard one had gotten death threats because he had previously supported Emmanuel Macron in the past. So, yeah, I think it's a total mess. But the only person who who benefits from the mess, it's not the far right, it's not Le Pen, who will probably have some of her voters taken away, um, who will go to, to the yellow vest. It's Macron in the end. So if they want to do the damage that they think they're going to do, they need to regroup and organize and not have three lists. <laughs> That's going to be so confusing. Yeah, voting is confusing enough. Division is ruling here, no? Divide them and then you stay a ruler forever, I think. Um, but it will take a bit of time as well. They, are, they exist if this election... So Emmanuel Macron should give some funding for anyone who wants to set up a yellow vest <laughs> local group. Yeah, depending on the colour, you know, which, which uh, shade of yellow. But uh, if they don't uh, make it this time, I think they exist. And there is a movement that started 
in five years' time, maybe they would be stronger, maybe they would be more organized, and uh, this is what Europe shouldn't be. Well, maybe the real story is just the destruction of all the establishment parties. It really yeah. feels like the Dutchification of the French political system, where there's going to be something like eight different political parties getting mm. elected, and they all seem to be very disorganized. I mean, look at Emmanuel Macron being unable to form a European-wide party or list. So they've kind of become... Dutch in their fragmentation and Italian in their levels of organization. <laughs> what if what they if they regroup with a five-star mo- movement or they regroup with bigger parties and they are more organized? This is this is the real threat. So, I do hope that really President Macron um, continues being um, there <laughs> for Europe. You know, you think that they're going to regroup with the five-star movement when they can't even organize themselves among French? Uh, but nowadays, Italy, everything they Italy, coming from France, coming from President Macron, they will object it and they will support whatever against. It's very obvious. So you never know how how these movements uh, work in in Europe. Hmm. I think my new policy with anything French is to believe it when I see it. You know, when those uh, yellow vests or those Macronistas fill out their forms and submit their official candidacy, then I will believe that they're actually running in the election. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Thank you, Alva. Thank you, Lena. Pleasure. And as always, podcasting is a team effort. So big thanks to Antonio Fernandez and Andrew Gray. And if you haven't already signed up to our community, please do so at politico.eu forward slash registration. Tick the EU Confidential box or subscribe wherever you found the podcast. The more people who sign up, the more people who will know that the podcast exists and we will just grow bigger and better. And we thank you so much for all of that. 